0: Hello, this is David Naylor, and welcome to the audio commentary for The Man with the Golden Gun. On this audio commentary, we'll be hearing from many of the film's cast and crew, including director Guy Hamilton, continuity supervisor Elaine Schrake, production designer Peter Merton, and cinematographer Ozzie Morris, as well as cast members Christopher Lee, Maud Adams, and Britt Eklund. The stories which you're about to hear reflect the personal recollections and opinions of those who provided the interviews, Some comments have been edited for time and clarity. They are not meant to provide the definitive history of the film.
1: I'd always been fascinated by the Bay d'Alon, which is in Indochina. And during the Vietnam War, it was quite impossible to go there. It's a series of extraordinary rocks that grow out of the sea. And I was thumbing through a National Geographic magazine and saw that they had a slightly similar thing further south, in Thailand. So as we went off location hunting, to see whether we could take where we could take Bond, I was determined to find this uh, rock in this area. Alvy uh who was an extraordinary little French character, uh, Mark Lawrence, who played a gangster in Diamonds Are Forever, was back again, and I love the idea of seeing a sort of Chicago gangster in the middle of Thailand. Maud, again, this is one of her early pictures. I'd met her in New York. Uh, She was so elegant and beautiful that she seemed to me to be a perfect Bond girl. And in fact, uh, that turned out to be the case. We're seeing... uh, Scaramanga Garamanga hiring a professional killer to practice uh, his uh, shooting ability to keep, uh, keep in trim because the man with the golden gun was a real ace shot with the golden gun and that's what later on Bond is going to have to cope with and this is to demonstrate that uh, Garamanga's a fair shot with a gun. I'd known Chris for a long time. Again, a to me, a typical Bond, Mr. Big, uh, elegant, uh, intelligent, is able to uh, entertain James Bond, uh, talk to him on the same level, and have some diabolical scheme that we will find out in due course.
0: Mark Lawrence was born Max Goldsmith in New York City on February 17, 1910. In the 1930s, he became active in the group theater until being given a film contract by Columbia Pictures. One of his earliest film roles was in the W.C. Fields classic If I Had a Million in 1932. Since then, Lawrence has appeared in over 160 films, mostly in gangster roles. In recent years, he played a bellhop in Four Rooms and a mob boss in the HBO movie Gotti. The Man with the Golden Gun was Lawrence's second appearance in a James Bond film. He can also be seen in Diamonds Are Forever. Now let's return to Guy Hamilton to tell us about Scaramanga's Funhouse.
1: The idea here was targets, that Scaramanga, in order to keep his hand in, um, instead of fighting a bull, would fight another professional gunman. And every winch would be operating varying buttons which would cause light changes which would cause uh, targets to move.
0: Born in Paris in 1922, Guy Hamilton began his film career at the Victorine Studios in Nice as a tea T-boy. When World War II began, Hamilton joined the Royal Navy and crewed on a destroyer. After the war, Hamilton began working as an assistant director. He soon earned a reputation as one of the best in the business, traveling to Africa to work with John Huston on the African Queen. Hamilton's directing break came when Alexander Quarter offered him a low-budget feature, The Ringer. The film proved a success, and Hamilton was on his way. When Dr. No began production, Hamilton was approached to direct, but did not commit to make a Bond film until Goldfinger, the third in the series. After directing a few other films for producer Harry Saltzman, including The Battle of Britain, Hamilton returned to direct Diamonds Are Forever. He then directed Roger Moore's debut 007 film Live and Let Die and went immediately into pre-production on The Man with the Golden Gun.
1: I've always been interested in uh, the history of gangsters because as a small lad in Paris, I went to Sunday school at the American Cathedral and uh, in order to keep the class quiet, uh, our teacher was from Chicago and lived in the same street as Al Capone and kept us absolutely riveted with stories about Al Capone. And so from a very early age, um, I wanted to see a white fedora, I wanted to know all about Al Capone, and we were the best behaved Bible class
0: in the business. Production designer Peter Merton was no stranger to the world of James Bond, having worked in the art department under Ken Adam on Goldfinger and Thunderball. Merton recalls working with director Guy Hamilton and designing Scaramanga's Funhouse.
2: Guy was the kind of person that I could go and talk to and say, look, what if we did this or that? And he'd, he'd say, yeah, well, yes, why not? Let's try it. Work it up, come tell me about it, and uh, and I'll tell the boys up front. And if you like, see so he says, well, that's what we're gonna do. Because again, he had this freedom of manipulation of, of of what he had time to do and what he could afford. It was a fun house, but it was a horror house as well, of course. So you had to just invent all these things, which had to link, because there was a storyline of... It was a chase, really, within this place. And uh, all the ideas were put in a melting pot, and I just had to make the best I could out of them, because I think the, you know, the idea of the, of the six-shooter coming out of the bar and fanning his gun, I think it was a lovely
0: idea. Eddie Powell doubles for Christopher Lee for the role Down the Ramp. Powell had served as Lee's stunt double on many films, including Dracula, Prince of Darkness, in which he had to fall through broken ice into a moat. Certain of the figures in Scaramanga's Funhouse are actually actors. Ray Marioni plays Capone, and Les Crawford is the gunslinger. But the figure of Bond is in fact a wax effigy, as director Guy Hamilton recalls. The art department
1: spent a lot of time and a lot of skill went into saying, right, obviously use a fountain pen, would be the barrel, uh, what would be the stock, uh, how can, what bits and pieces can we do to make up a, a logical gun. That's a wax model of uh, Roger and I think a good one.
0: Maud Adams, a former model born in Sweden, recalls working on the exotic locations of the man with the golden gun.
3: We would travel every day by boat, uh, and by small boats, I should say, because uh, the water is very shallow and you couldn't bring out very large boats to the islands. so we would all travel in en masse in small boats, probably about um, 10, 12 people to a boat out to the location. And they had brought in a larger boat for us to. Uh, where we had our setup, where we did makeup and hair, it's rather extraordinary that they would pick something like that for their location because it is. I mean, the logistics were incredible to get everybody out there, to get all the supplies out there, and uh, and of course the tide could change, and then we couldn't uh, travel as easily as we as we um, could have. I mean, should have, and and also from time to time you have really depended on weather. I guess it's sort of a. a, a marked to how, how well organized they are because they really pulled it off fairly easily we had some delays but most of it went fairly smoothly and it was hot and it was difficult at times i approached the part as i i mean as I, when i read the character of course i formed a picture in my mind what i thought she was all about but as is often true with many of the characters in in the scripts you really have to flesh them out yourself And in order to do that, I needed some help. And I did speak to Guy, of course, and he helped me along. And you must remember that I was rather inexperienced at this point, so um, I I needed a lot of help at the time.
0: The coastal islands of Thailand were not the first exotic location scouted for the Man with the Golden Gun, as co-writer Tom Mankiewicz recalls.
4: We originally were thinking about shooting Man with the Golden Gun in Iran, We had seen this short film by a French filmmaker, LaMaurice, who had done a wonderful film called The Red Balloon. And at the end, this little fox ran across the desert toward this lost city. And we said, my God, what a place to shoot. We flew to Iran, and we got into this little uh, King Air, and went over the mountains to the lost city of Bam. We landed in the middle of the desert. People came out to meet us. We went around the corner of mountains to the lost city of Bam, and it was the wrong city. And Cubby said, forget it. And we're flying back, and the thermal updrafts are unbelievable in this plane, and we're bouncing. I mean, I just thought we're never gonna get out of this. And I said to Cubby, when we get back, we should ask LaMaurice where he shot it. We never thought about calling him. And Cubby said, he's dead. And I said, how did he die? He said, in a plane accident in Iran. And all of a sudden we hear on the on the loudspeaker, the intercom, <laughs> and these phantom jets go by. And I said, what's going on? And the pilot said, uh, Israel has just declared war on Egypt. The Ramadan War had started. We decided not to go back to Iran to shoot.
0: Getting the plot across to an audience is always a challenge, as director Guy Hamilton explains. The M scene always sets
1: the story on its way, even if it's... Uh, I'd rather get over the exposition of the the plot. There is a man called Scaramanga. He's known as the man with the golden gun. He uses golden bullets. Uh, he's very difficult to find. Nobody knows where he lives. Uh, your job for the following reasons is to find him. Uh, it's the Right, audience, listen to this because it's the last piece of exposition we're ever going to have in the picture. Once you've got that in mind, then we can forget about the plot we can forget about long dialogue scenes and we can rush ahead and start to have fun go places all over the world uh, and off we go so just be patient listen to this and this gives you all the information you need for the rest of the film yes it's got your number on it which suggests that he's challenging you and you've already seen scaramanga you know that he's rather good with a bullet. Bernard became M and uh, is irreplaceable uh, until Judy Dench came along to become mrs. M wonderfully well I thought that was the right move because there's nobody who would take Bernard's place he Bernard had the same attitude that uh, I insist that Q have Q always thought when I first uh, worked with Q and Sean Connery. Desmond Llewellyn was uh, was practically genuflecting in front of uh, James Bond. And I thought, that's absolutely wrong. You hate 007. I mean, he's, he's the worst agent. Uh, 006 returns the props. 009 uses them in the correct way. And Desmond said, oh, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I do love my props and I wouldn't... so." Once that relationship was set, uh, you could develop it from there on. And this constant game that drives M mad, that Bond... I mean, the moment you mention any drink, uh, Bond has got to say, ah, yes, um, and, and top M all the time, and it's most irritating.
0: The man with the golden gun was Bernard Lee's ninth consecutive appearance as 007's boss M and Desmond Llewellyn's seventh appearance as Gadget Master Q. Here's continuity supervisor Elaine Shrake.
5: Bernard Lee, Desmond Llewellyn and Lois Maxwell. Um, Bernard I had worked with before on other films, so I knew. But of course, because I did six films with them, we became very good friends and it was always a pleasure to see them. And we got on extremely well. I love them all dearly i did the battle of britain with guy and um he certainly when he was going to do uh, this next bond film he asked me if i'd like to work with him and i enjoyed working with him very much so that's how i came to work on the bond films and have always enjoyed working with him uh have done the bond films have done other films with him and uh, you know we just sort of i just understood what he wanted, and he uh, you know, he would uh, rely on me for certain things, which I enjoyed doing so much. You never take Continuity Girl is a person who sits by the camera the whole time, making notes of every shot that moment, takes place, uh, how long it runs, how many takes there are, what you print, and so forth. Makes notes of the costumes that people wear, the position of everything in a room, uh, how the hair is, and so forth so that if one person gets up on a certain line and walks out of the room, maybe you'll do the exterior. Three weeks later, the person is wearing exactly the same thing and looks exactly the same as she did before. Hasn't got sunburned in between or anything like that. It's a case of making copious notes of everything that happens so that everybody has reference. Uh, The camera people have reference, and, and you've taken all the notes on the camera, Uh, It's really for the editor so that he knows every shot and also for the director say somebody changes their lines Or he wants something or an alternative because in the old days you couldn't use square words So you did one take with a square word one without so that he knows exactly what he's got And so that maybe later on you want to do another shot with the change of line Then you know exactly what it is. So it's all reference and it is very important from that point of view to have somebody who you, you can't let up for one moment. You daren't sort of move away or, or um, think, oh, well, I, I won't bother to watch this bit because it, it's absolutely imperative. And sometimes too, when you have finished a shot and they're going to move in closer and there might've been a lamp behind them and suddenly you see the cameraman moving the lamp and you say, what's happening? And he says, oh, well, we won't see it. will grow out of their head. I said, well, it's still got to be there, even if you don't, you know, put it over a shoulder. Those are the things you cannot deviate for one moment in your actual position of what you're trying to do. You just must keep going and hope to God that it'll all be all right. And the main thing, too, again, for, for printing shots, you know... Days later, he may say, oh, we've seen takes three and four, but uh, uh, haven't we got another one that we could print out that wasn't too bad or whether it was a fluff or something like that? And then you've got your notes and you can go back and say, oh, yes, you could print up so and so and so and so. That's the job. Working on a James Bond film, of course, it was different than the fact that there was a a great deal of, of activity and a lot of stunts and all that sort of thing, but the job is the same whether you're working on Nun's Story or, or whether you're working on Sleuth or whether you're working on, on a Bond. The only great thing about Bonds, of course, uh, they spend a great deal of money and you can see it on the screen. That is the great thing about a Bond film. It's a classy picture, not that the others weren't classy pictures, but you can really see it there and a lot of time and good work has gone into it.
0: The sequences inside the Beirut nightclub and Saida's dressing room were the last scenes of the movie to be filmed. They were shot on Pinewood's B stage at the end of August, 1974. In the original screenplay, Saida is described as excessively plump and over made up, wearing thin Turkish trousers and a short velvet bed jacket. Bond winces at the sight of her, but for the film, the producers chose an actress more in keeping with the requirements of a Bond girl, lovely Carmen Sortoy, who later joined the Royal Shakespeare Company. Director Guy Hamilton recalls filming the scenes. Roger's
1: done so many fights that he's um, very adept for the upper part of his body. You can stage uh, anything where he uses his arms and, and strength. Roger is now well settled in as Bond, so he's more relaxed. He can play a little lighter because this is Roger's strength.
0: In the fight scene, character actor George Silver is one of the men who menaces Roger Moore. The other two are Terry Plummer and Rocky Taylor. The fight was arranged by Les Crawford, who also plays the gunfighter in Scaramanga's Funhouse. In the original script, the scene with Saida occurs in a bordello. Bond seduces Saida in her room, where he sees a hole in the wall that has been plastered over, a sign of the bullet that killed Fairbanks. Behind a latticework screen near the bed Bond detects the shape of a man. We are supposed to think it may be Scaramanga, but in fact it's a blackmailer with a movie camera filming Bond's lovemaking. A fight ensues which ends with Bond throwing the man out of the window and into a refuse bin. He then goes back to wooing Saida, who is now in bed with the covers pulled up to her waist. Bond sees the mashed golden bullet hanging from a black ribbon between her cleavage. He heaves a things I do for England sigh and begins to undress. Later, Saida awakens to find that Bond is gone, and so is the Golden Bullet. The scene is reminiscent of From Russia With Love, where Bond makes love to Tatiana, who wears a black ribbon around her neck, while being filmed from behind a two-way mirror above the bed. Now director Guy Hamilton recalls working with actor Desmond Llewellyn.
1: Desmond, um, I don't think you change a battery and a torch. Uh, he's not at all, and he's... He gets so worried uh, when there's technical dialogue because there's always plenty of that. But fortunately, he only has to say it
0: once a year, and so his word perfect.
6: millimeter there's no such thing as a 4.2 millimeter gun.
0: Q was completely absent from the previous Bond film, Live and Let Die, which abandoned the obligatory Q introduces Bond to the gadget scene. Likewise, there is no such scene in The Man with the Golden Gun. Aside from supplying Bond with the false nipple he needs to impersonate Scaramanga, Q merely provides information. Interestingly, he is paired with a ballistics expert played by actor James Cossens, who, in the script, is called Boothroyd. When the scenes were shot, the Cosson's character's name was changed to Colthorpe as it was realized that Q's given name is in fact Major Boothroyd. The shots at Macau's floating casino were filmed on May 14, 1974, with a crowd of 76 extras plus casino staff. Here, we first see Marne Maitland as Portuguese gunsmith Lazar. Maitland began his career with such adventure films as Carol Reed's Outcast of the Islands and The Mark of the Hawk. May 14th was a busy day for Roger Moore. Besides the casino scene, he also filmed the shots of Bond tailing Andrea en route to Macau and Bond in the trishore outside the floating casino. Director Guy Hamilton remembers shooting in Macau this we went to macau which was a boat trip from
1: hong kong in a hovercraft they've got a, a floating casino that was the which hong kong was very puritan and the no casinos there so we had to uh, go to macau and shoot on the casino that was actually there
0: cinematographer ted moore photographed seven of the first nine bond films before becoming a director of photography, he was a camera operator on The African Queen. Moore won an Academy Award for his work on the 1966 movie A Man for All Seasons. When he fell ill after completing location work for The Man with the Golden Gun, Ozzie Morris, himself an Oscar winner for Fiddler on the Roof, was called in to replace him.
7: I didn't even know Ted was ill, but I got a phone call. I was in our house minding my own business, enjoying myself between films. I got a phone call from my agent saying, uh, I've been asked to ask you to take over the man with the golden gun. Now, that would have been my fourth takeover of a film. And that is very difficult because each one of us has their own style. I don't like doing that. And I did it three times and I said to Lee, my wife, look, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do it. So I I told them I didn't want to do it. Fine. Everything went quiet for two or three days. My agent, again, came on the phone and said, look, uh, Cubby has spoken to me just now and asked you to reconsider it, cos they've got a problem, and they can't find anybody. I said, I'll think it over, I'll give you 24 hours, and I called him. I called him back, and I said, look, I still don't want to do it. It's You know, I've done it three times, and it just isn't very nice experience. Right, he said, I'll tell Cubby that. A few days went by, he phoned again and said, look, Cubby wants you and your wife to come and have dinner at the Mirabelle." Now, I knew, knowing Cubby, as we all do, that was Cubby's softening process, you see. And we were going to have it a Saturday night, and Dennis Van Tile and his wife were invited. And uh, Cubby uh, oozed charm, as, as he always does do. And there were about six or eight of us. Guy Hamilton had come back from Hong Kong. I knew the unit weren't back. I did know that this was a Saturday night and the unit were coming on the Sunday, having a off on the Monday, and they got to start in the studio on the Tuesday, and they still hadn't got a cameraman. I knew all this. But I went and we had this lovely meal with Cubby. Cubby didn't raise the question at all. But we found we had a wonderful time. Had coffee, had liqueurs, and we got up to go. And when we got out through the door, some or other, we grouped in two groups, because the Mirabelle has a very long pavement, and entrance. And my agent and I and our wives were this end, and and Cubby and Guy, and I think there was a production man there as well, at the other end. And Cubby called Dennis over, and Dennis went over there, and we waited. And I knew that, you know, he wasn't going to give up. And Dennis came back to me and said, Look, this is one last appeal from Cubby. He... Gives you his word of honour. There is nobody to take Ted's place except you. The ones that are available are very inexperienced. Uh, he says you can have anything you want in equipment, in money, or anything. So Dennis said to me, "Look, it's getting a bit sticky now. You know, you can do yourself a lot of harm if you if you don't really seriously consider this." He said, "I'd recommend you to do it." I said, all right, I'll do it, but I'll do it on funny conditions. I don't want any more money than I would normally get. I appreciate what Cubby says about the equipment and I I will take him up on that. If I want extra equipment, I shall ask for it, no problem. And I guarantee him I will finish the film in August on the date. And Cubby came over and put his arm around me and, you know, and fine. Now that's how I started the film.
0: Director Guy Hamilton remembers shooting on the capsized ocean liner, the Queen Elizabeth in Hong Kong Harbour.
1: When I was wrecking in Hong Kong, I saw the remains of the QE which was sabotaged and half sunk in Hong Kong Harbour and I thought we've got to use that. Look at it, it's lying on its side, uh, imagine that you had a scene where the whole set was at that angle wouldn't this be a nice office for uh, Bond and all the special agents in Hong Kong in the wreck of the QE they were going to remove it and so before the picture started I rushed over with Ted Moore and a cameraman and we shot the necessary shots of uh, the QE to cut into the Macau sequence, because you you pass it on the way to Macau and back again.
8: That's it!
0: Follow that road.
1: Mary Goodnight, yes, no? Brit, I think, was uh, one of Cubby's suggestions. He'd seen a, uh, a picture with uh, Brit and he was impressed with her uh, generous looks and thought that she would make Another good Bond girl in contrast to Maud. When Britt and Maud got together, they used to have giggles, and so that we didn't understand what they were chatting about, they turned into Swedish, which they thought was uh, rather clever. Here,
0: Maud Adams recalls filming in Hong Kong.
3: Oh, Hong Kong is a great place. I always wanted to go there, and it was a fantastic place to be. And we stayed at the Peninsula Hotel, which is, of course, world famous. And we were met by Rolls Royces, <laughs> which they're famous for. Each of our suites had its own private valet. We were really treated royally. I must say this, that um, for all the hard times we had in Nao, they made it up <laughs> in the other places where they could. I mean, we stayed in the best hotel in Bangkok and the best hotel in Hong Kong.
0: The film unit was based at Hong Kong's Peninsula Hotel, as director Guy Hamilton recalls. The Peninsula
1: Hotel is the hotel in Hong Kong. Most of the units stayed there, and they were, you know, again, helpful, letting us use uh, suites and uh, shooting outside. This is Studio Pinewood. Because we have a a little subtle nudity problem that has to be well controlled to keep the sensor off our tails. The glass has to be very special, the lighting has to be careful. The camera angles have to be remarkably careful.
0: The first scenes shot when the unit returned to Pinewood Studios were those in the cabin of Scaramanga's Junk. Ossie Morris remembers beginning work on the film.
7: Now, I went on to, into the set, onto the studios on Monday. Nobody was there. The sets were all built, it's all rigged for Ted Moore, not for me. And I say, look, what are we going to do? We've got to get some of this changed. I don't want it this way. They called in the gaffer, a man called Bert Boscher, who'd only come back the previous night, and we altered a lot of the sets uh, quickly. And the unit came in on Tuesday and started with me in his place. The only other stipulation, Cubby said, look, because he knows I've got a flair for innovating. I put all sorts of guns in front of the lens, you know, to do various things like ladies' silk stockings, Vaseline bits of mist filters and things like that. Cubby said, it has to be clean front, no, nothing on it. I said, all right, and so that's how I started. Now, it was very strange the first few days as you would expect. I mean, the unit, they were polite to me. And it was a bit difficult for a few days because I'd normally have my own crew, know me like the back of their hand. They know, you know, my fads and fancies, and this was a strange group. But gradually things settled down. Cubby was marvelous, Roger Moore was marvelous, and uh, uh, Guy was okay. So that's how I came to be on the film.
0: Director Guy Hamilton talks about the character of Andrea, Maud carries a lot
1: of the plot and so there's got to be a relationship and you need a little time to, to just set it up. Give me that! She's the one with all the information and is going to lead Bond to Scaramanga.
0: Here's Maud Adams to give us her recollections of the challenges of shooting the scene.
3: Well, it was a difficult scene to, to do because I don't think that Roger and playing him. A scene where he was hitting a woman, Um, I don't think it sat very well with him and uh, it's a rather serious scene and in retrospect, when I look at that work, I I think that I could have uh, added something to the scene to make it a little bit more interesting and not so much a scene where Bond is um, brutalizing
0: a woman. Director Guy Hamilton remembers the scene with Bond and Andrea.
1: Think seriously. I mean, if you were James Bond, just because she's a lady, would you treat her like a lady? The answer is no. I mean, you'd smack her around till she told you exactly what she wanted to know. And in fact, she does, because otherwise uh, we're not going to progress with the story.
0: Tom Mankiewicz, who knows. also contributed to the scripts of Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die, recalls the excitement of writing a James Bond adventure.
4: At the time this was going on, first of all, I like... Everyone else was just a huge Bond fan, and I think people forget today what a big event it was when a Bond movie opened. It happened every year and a half, sort of a Christmas, and then maybe the the summer after, uh, in the next year. And I was just floored. I mean, at the at the chance to write one because I was always first in line for a Bond movie, and also as a young writer, you thought, I can write this. I've got all the and I know the stuff and I've got you know and all of a sudden here's someone saying well go ahead we'll give you two weeks to see how good you are and I thought this is the biggest thing if it works that will ever happen to me and it certainly was because of all the things I've done since that was such a springboard for me to be the writer of the James Bond movies was such a an incredible singular kind of position to be in, in those days. There there was no competition for Bond. It wasn't like there were Star Wars and Superman and so-and-so and and all of these and Die Hard and whatever. Bond sort of was by itself.
0: The interiors of the Bottoms Up Club were filmed on the final day of shooting, August 23rd, 1974, on a set constructed by Peter Merton on stage D at Pinewood. Weiwei Wong plays the topless waitress, though pains were taken to ensure that we never see her truly topless. Wong also appears in the opening titles, which Maurice Binder began shooting on G-Stage two days earlier. Gibson, the solar expert, was played by Gordon Everett, who had an inside track on the role. He happened to be the film's sound mixer. Christopher Lee is an actor who has made a career of screen villainy. After a stint in the Air Force during World War II, Lee tried his hand at acting. Among his first features was Corridor of Mirrors, directed by future James Bond director Terence Young, in which Lee played a scene opposite Lois Maxwell. In 1958, Lee played the title role in the Hammer films classic, Horror of Dracula. Over the next 15 years, he would play the role five more times for Hammer and three times in other productions. Now Guy Hamilton recalls directing Scaramanga's love scene with Andrea.
1: Scaramanga and Maud. Scaramanga, you sort of feel that he's, uh, that he's dark, uh, Italianate, Spanish, uh, Portuguese, something like that. Uh, you don't feel that he's necessarily American. And I thought of uh, Chris Lee because we'd often met uh, in London at varying occasions and he's got a very elegant voice uh, it's always the Chris's voice that strikes you first and then he's uh, got an elegance and um, again looking for a villain uh, he's got some class which I think is essential and we proposed him and uh, that seemed to go down well with everybody and was very, very professional to work with.
0: The exteriors of the Bottoms Up Club were filmed in early May 1974 on Hanoi Road in Kowloon, Hong Kong. soon O, Oh, who plays Lieutenant Hip, British intelligence's man in Hong Kong, remembers how he came to be cast in The Man with the Golden Gun. At that
9: time, I was very much into martial art myself, uh, which they saw in... Uh Kung Fu problem most likely. I got a call one day and my agent asked me if I would like to be in a James Bond picture. Around nineteen seventies, you know, James Bond picture is a big, big event. So I was I thought she was joking. But she said if you could be I forgot the time, about I think four in the afternoon, if you could come in and there will be producer and a director be waiting. I thought it was kind of too sudden for a big picture, something like that. Yeah, But I, however, so I went in to the agency office and uh, her, my, at that time my agent's name was Bessie Lou, a legendary figure in Hollywood because she started her career in good earth. <laughs> so uh, she was very upset because I didn't dress properly because I dressed so casually. But I remember Mr. Broccoli saying, no, he's perfect. So Mr. Broccoli told Mr. Hamilton that uh, tell me, to tell me the story about men with the golden yeah. gun. It was so sudden, and sort of uh, you know like a picture like James Bond. You would go for an interview, then you will go screen test, then eventually they will call you like a few months later. Yeah? So something about me probably was quite you know puzzling to them. So Mr. Berkeley said that I had to make decision within an hour or so because he has to go and buy that plane that they used in the picture. So my agent was quite nervous because I wasn't jumping up and down. So I went out. Then about 15 minutes later, I walked back. And I said, yes. I don't know what I did during the 15 minutes, but probably walked around the block. (laughs) That's how I got into the film. So I, expect, I suppose that by the time they came to Hollywood, they knew um, exactly whom to get. Oh, that's what I just, you know, assuming. Mr. Hamilton, I think what I remember, we were in Hong Kong four weeks, we were in Thailand I think the second week. I was very dissatisfied in a sense that like they were mostly shooting exterior shots. You turn, you know, you take two steps, you turn right, and you look to your left, and all that kind of mechanical things. So obviously, he must have felt that I was, you know, quite puzzled as well as disappointed. So I, you know, I was just out of the acting school, and I was going to be a great tragic actor, you know, not. So he told me that. I must have been very unhappy, very un- felt unfulfilled, however by the time we go back to Pinewood that uh, you know, there will be time to act. So for now he says it's not just doing the mechanics, so to be patient and bear with what he wants me to do. So I thought that was very nice of him to tell me that.
0: These scenes of the Hong Kong waterfront were filmed at Queen's Pier during night shooting on May 3, 1974. Close shots of Bond on the deck of the capsized Queen Elizabeth were shot near the end of the production schedule in late August on Pinewood's D stage. Interior shots were filmed at Pinewood in mid-August. Peter Merton's imaginative tilted sets echo the tilted doorways of Scaramanga's Funhouse, and both are reminiscent of the expressionistic silent film classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Using the Queen Elizabeth as a cover for salvaging a Chinese fighter is an idea that was mirrored in reality. In June of 1974, Howard Hughes's $200 million ship, the Glomar Explorer, went to sea claiming to be searching for manganese nodules on the Pacific sea floor. According to the New York Times, the Glomar Explorer was on a mission from the CIA to recover a Soviet submarine that sank in 1968, 750 miles northwest of Hawaii. Glomar Explorer found the sub 17,000 feet beneath the surface and attempted to lift it from the ocean floor. But the sub's hull broke apart during the lifting operation. Nonetheless, three nuclear missiles, two nuclear torpedoes, the ship's code machine and various Soviet codebooks were reportedly recovered. The Glomar Explorer, now on lease to global marine drilling, is currently in the Gulf of Mexico, drilling oil at depths of up to 750 feet, or so they say. Now back to director Guy Hamilton.
1: It's a rather long and complicated dialogue scene because it sets the second half of the picture in motion. Uh, What Bond has to do from this point on. We've met all the cast by now. Uh, Forward, this is what you've got to do, James. Lying around somewhere, there is a solar energy device its importance is that it uh, is better than nuclear power uh, because it operates by the sun, which is with you all the time and doesn't cost anything. If anybody could harness sun's rays and produce electricity, it would be so commercial that all our energy problems throughout the world would be solved. All they have is they've lost the device that might be the secret of this solar energy machine uh, and all they got in return is a corpse so that Bond has got to somehow re-infiltrate
0: into the plot. Peter Merton remembers designing the canted sets for the interiors of the Queen Elizabeth.
2: They'd had films there before. They had the local films who were always, as local films do, take liberties. Although most of their films are in-house films, you know, even the actresses are in-house actresses. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think we had any great problems. Once the producers got hold of something, you know, they they seem to fix things pretty well. The most difficult part was design sets, which were all at 45 degrees. Yet people had to had to walk upright. So the the, the draftsman who had to create the drawings for these sets. And the construction people thought I was crazy when I first gave them these these drawings. He said, Peter, what what's what's all this? I said, well you know, you just think about it. So we had to build walkways through all the sets up into various places because you can't walk on forty-five degrees, not act not when you're trying to act as well.
0: Ian Fleming's novel The Man with the Golden Gun was published in nineteen sixty five a year after the author's death. Fleming had felt that the novel would be his final 007 adventure. As he wrote to his editor, quote, this is, alas, the last Bond novel, and again, alas, I mean it, for I really have run out of both puff and zest, unquote. Fleming had hoped to delay publication of the novel and rework it when he returned to Jamaica. His editor, however, assured him that the novel would measure up to his reader's expectations. The novel gets off to an amazing start. After being captured and brainwashed by the KGB, 007 is sent back to London to assassinate M. The plot is foiled and he undergoes months of deprogramming, after which he is sent to Jamaica to infiltrate the organization of Pistol Scaramanga, a Cuban-born freelance assassin under KGB control, who has murdered several secret agents. The finale of the novel takes place aboard a train, which ultimately crashes. Bond then follows Scaramanga into a swamp, where the two have a final duel. For producers Saltzman and Broccoli, the story seemed too similar to their previous 007 film, Live and Let Die, which was set in Jamaica and also ended on a train. Hence, they changed the story's location to Asia, adding a colourful, exotic flavour to the film. Now back to Guy Hamilton, who recalls shooting the scenes on High Fat's estate.
1: We're in Hong Kong at some millionaire's villa. The Bruce Lee films were certainly around... They hadn't quite reached their, um, the success that uh, they subsequently had. But of course, we're all interested in playing around with Kung Fu.
0: The scenes at Hai Fats Estate were filmed during the first week of May at the Dragon Garden on Castle Peak Road in Kowloon, Hong Kong. After soon signed on to be a supporting actor in The Man with the Golden Gun, he found himself literally supporting 007 star Roger Moore on his shoulders. Here he remembers filming the sequence. So at that time I didn't...
9: I weighed around like I think 138 or 40 or something like that. So I think his concern was whether I will be able to uh, support him. I think he quickly held on to the wall itself so that, uh, that it wasn't that much of weight on my shoulders. Nice, old, nice man.
0: <laughs> Thai industrialist Hai Fat is portrayed by respected actor Richard Liu, a native Hawaiian who began acting in films during the 1930s with notable productions such as The Bitter Tea of General Yen and The Good Earth. During World War II, Liu's career took off as he played a series of evil Japanese imperialists, even playing Emperor Hirohito in the 1942 film Star-Spangled Rhythm. War roles continued into the 1950s, replaced later by appearances in Asian-based films, such as The Hong Kong Affair and The Sand Pebbles. The Man with the Golden Gun was one of Liu's last films before he retired. Now back to Guy Hamilton.
1: Here's our Chinese Mr. Big. The idea is that he's passing himself off as Scaramanga. Uh, The third nipple is the uh, point of recognition, and obviously, this Chinese Mr. Big knows about Scaramanga because that's one of the few things known about him that he has three nipples, and so he takes it as read that this he is now talking to Scaramanga. Bond will get the information that he needs.
0: Now let's go back to Suntec O, who recalls his friendship with actor Richard Liu. Richard and I
9: knew before we started that picture, because not only he's a senior Asian-American actor in Hollywood, but we've done a couple of other things. Richard, he was in Hong Kong with his wife, and they were sort of always um, like guarding me or protecting me or leading me. so my memories, they've been always trying to uh, take care of me. Uh, When we came back to America, in turn, I was trying to uh, take care of him in a little chores, but then pretty soon I got busy and uh, he passed away.
0: The golden gun became the bane of Christopher Lee's existence when he embarked on a publicity tour for the film. As Lee relates in his autobiography Tall, Dark and Gruesome, when he arrived in Los Angeles for an appearance on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, the gun, although unable to fire real bullets, was confiscated by customs agents, and Lee appeared on the program without the remarkable prop. Later in Dallas, Lee was carrying the gun, quote, openly and absent-mindedly unquote, towards a television studio when he heard someone shout, drop it. He turned around to find a policeman aiming a real gun at him. Luckily, when Lee showed the cop the golden gun, the policeman realized that it was a fake and he let him go. Finally in New York Lee was leaving his hotel room when he spotted Billy Wilder who had directed the actor in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes seeing the gun Wilder cried you wouldn't shoot an elderly Jew Lee writes that though he dropped broad hints he was not allowed to keep the golden gun now actor Soonteko recalls some of the mechanical problems he encountered on The Man with the Golden Gun We were in Bangkok and uh,
9: when after I read the script that through the agency I asked them to uh, have a car automatic because I wasn't going to deal with all those you know, shifts and so forth and particularly like in Hong Kong at the other side of the car, the other side of the street. So, um, however, by the time I got to Hong Kong it was a stick shift and it was the other side and all that. So I was struggling with it. On a Bangkok that in front of Oriental Hotel there's a sequence that I drive by, slow down, and Mr. Moore comes in. He jumps into the passenger seat, and I was supposed to take off. At the time that, you know, as I said, you know, James Bond, pictures such an event, particularly in Thailand, so a humongous crowd watching. So I go and you know, I drive in, I try to shift, and he jumps in, I try to shift and take off, then car stalls. So that you know, said so, okay, cut. Then we do it again, and it stalls again. So about the third time, Mr. Hamilton got very upset. He says, oh, these young people, you know, they don't know how to drive the car." He says, "Give me your jacket, and I'm going to do it." So I don't know how he's going to do it, but anyway, he comes in the left side. I suppose he could do it. So he got in, and he started the car, and he stalled at the same spot. <laughs> so. He was, uh, needless to say, you know, everybody's cheering and uh, jeering and all that. Then finally Mr. Hamilton says to Mr. Brockley, I says, you drive. So Mr. Brockley got in and it doesn't even start. So I was the best driver anyway.
0: <laughs> Guy Hamilton remembers shooting the night scenes at the Dragon Garden in Kowloon. It's the
1: night scene that um, intrigued me. I remember... In one of the earlier Bonds where they shot in Japan, these men, absolutely enormous, but with these terrible sashes uh, tied round their middles. And I always wondered what would happen if um, you started to twiddle on the knot on the end. And so had this idea that one of these huge gentlemen would grab Bond round the middle, squeeze the life out of him and you think how That can't be pleasant. How's he going to get out of that? And Bond has the simplest answer in the world, which is as he's bent over the back double, Uh, get hold of the knot and keep on twiddling till uh, it is most unpleasant for your gentleman, Sumo gentleman.
0: Co art director Peter Lamont remembers shooting the night scenes in the Dragon Garden on the evenings of the 1st and 2nd of May 1974. Hong Kong was.
8: Quite a place where Mr. Lee's house was where um, High Fat lived, and there was a tomb up there, you know, the, a mausoleum, all ready for his death. And we had to do the uh, like the Tiger Balm gardens with uh, knickknack all, all dressed, and uh, the two sumo wrestlers. And there's a funny tale about that because um, way, way after uh, we. Uh, we left there, we had a message that uh, Mr. Lee had been round his garden and found these strange animals in his... Uh, they weren't animals, they were some of our kind of uh, things from the kind of tiger bomb garden that we'd made. We had to get the, the local props in there to remove them. But uh, it was uh, quite a time that we had there, you know. Chinese are great people, you know, very industrious, and uh, it all worked out well. The big problem down there was food, but uh, George Crawford, it was our caterer at the time. He came down, he took over a restaurant and he did all the catering and everybody kind of survived very well. But when we were up in um, Bangkok, um, George, we all lived in the Narai Hotel and uh, George did a whole deal with uh, a hotel that they would do all the catering for us and he would, would arrange it. I must say, the very first meal we ever had at lunch, it was just like a wedding breakfast. It was great. There was table laid out in this huge buffet it was clean crisp uh, tablecloths there was washing facilities glass silver proper cutlery it was absolutely wonderful we all thought oh well you know this is the first day it'll just it'll just kind of slide off the next day but it didn't all it was was the amount of food had gone down to kind of even out and wherever we had, we always broke at lunch. George had always found somebody in the cool where there was wind blowing. There were all these lovely scented kind of flannels, either hot or cold, whether you wanted. And so uh, and kind of, so people could wash and kind of feel feel at lunch and drink from a glass instead of drinking from a can or from a, a kind of a polystyrene cup.
0: It was great. When soon saw the film for the first time, he was surprised to learn that the voice coming out of Lieutenant Hipp's mouth was not always his own. Mr. Broccoli called the agency to
9: particularly tell me to come to the Premier. And he wrote a letter saying something about, I may not be happy the way it has been edited, but it works better that way so forth. At that time, I didn't know the meaning of the letter, that why he had to write me a letter of saying that the way it was edited is much better for the picture. Later on, when I had an opportunity of seeing it, I suddenly realized that uh, my voice exterior in Hong Kong and exterior Bangkok are different. Only interior voices are mine. So probably, I don't know, so maybe I'm, you know, Phonetically, a vocally very talented actor that can change the quality of the voice as well as an accent. Then I said, Oh, that's not my voice. Then I realized why he wrote the letter. He was very kind.
0: The karate school scenes were filmed at the end of May in the ancient city. Located on the Sukhumvit Highway in Changwat Samut Prakan, Bangkok's ancient city is the world's largest outdoor museum. Covering some 280 acres, it consists of small-scale replicas of many of the most famous buildings, monuments and temples found in all parts of Thailand. Rehearsals for the fight scene began weeks earlier and involved both Roger Moore and Chan-Yu Lam, who plays Chula. Ozzy Morris recalls shooting in the ancient city.
7: It's the design of them that's the thing that impresses. You're not attempting to put anything into it, because it's all there, A, in the story, B, in the performance, and C, in the design of the sets. You don't have to put an input into it. And the spectacle and the stunts do it all for yourself. you. You just make a very efficient photographic input. And that's exactly what Ted did, I think. And that, he set the pattern, and we were all ordered to keep to that, because Cubby liked that. I lit the Bond film as a professional job I was impressed by the sets and everything that went on in it, you know. It, it, it wasn't as important, say, as on a Zeffirelli film, where the photography plays a very important part. You don't need that on a Bond film. There's so much going on in it. God, you know, it's, if you put another input into it, you know, the audience would be totally bewildered. Let me give you a contrast between, say, uh, Moulin Rouge and The Man With The Golden Gun. Moulin Rouge, the visual input, I think, was probably 50% of what you remember of the film. In fact, it might even be a bit more. And that was Houston's aim, to do this, because he felt that it was about an artist and he wanted the visual to be very powerful. Now, you could argue that the visual is more powerful than the story, which you could also say is a weakness because the cinematographer should not overpower the story. He should come up to the level of the story, but he should never usurp the story. Now, in Moulin Rouge, I think we did, but deliberately, by design, I was told to go whole hog and do whatever I wanted, and he'd back me up. And boy, he did back me up, and I got into terrible trouble with it. But with the Bond film, you don't do that. It's all, all the input is, as I've explained, when the design and the script and the stunts and the
0: spectacle, you don't need the other. Here's Guy Hamilton to tell us about shooting the martial arts scenes.
1: These were a couple of the students we collected from a judo school. They're very, very efficient ladies when let loose on their judo. And they look like little schoolgirls, but um,
0: they're anything but. Jay Milligan's company, JM Productions, gained worldwide attention with a unique car stunt that had its public debut at the Houston Astrodome. The stunt caught the attention of Bond co-producer Cubby Broccoli, who wanted to use it in his next 007 film, The Man with the Golden Gun. Here's Jay Milligan. I'm the-
10: the CEO of JM Productions, and we're a motorsports company. And in the movie, it says W.J. Milligan, W period, J period movie, stunt coordinates of the movie. So there were things in the movie beside the automotive things that I looked after. Some were the boat scenes and the cutting of the boat in half. There were other things beside the cars. But 90% of it was automotive.
0: Shooting the boat chase in the canals, or clongs of Thailand was sometimes risky work, as director Guy Hamilton recalls. One of the features of Bangkok where this was shot
1: was the clongs, the canals, and these long boats with the motor. And whilst we were working on these canals, they're absolutely filthy. And the unit doctor said, whatever you do... Uh, don't um, touch that water, never put uh, your hand in your mouth, don't even wet your lips because you'll get dysentery and all sorts of horrible diseases. Bond comes along in that long boat with that uh, rudder and he's uh, had a little experience uh, driving these boats and he pushes the thing a little too hard and goes into the clong, into this black water. Now, I'm not worried because I know that Roger's an exceptionally good swimmer, but he doesn't come up. Uh, the boat is sort of going round in circles, and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to do my uh, rover to the rescue act, and so i am you know, got to dive in and save him. And uh, I start to take my shoes off, and eventually Roger pops up I he was sigh of relief. He'd stayed down because he was watching this uh, screw that was whizzing around and he was being a bit careful not to have the top of his head knocked off. Uh, But instead of getting uh, applause, all the unit
0: shouted, Roger, don't wet your lips. Director of photography, Ozzie Morris, remembers production designer Peter Merton's early days. Peter Merton came from the School of Production Designers, which started
7: under the legendary Johnny Bryan at Pinewood. And their whole lot of designers were, in the, were draftsmen in the, off, in the uh, art department when Johnny Bryan, was, uh, who was a brilliant designer, was in full cry at Pinewood. And those include such people as Peter Merton... Uh, Peter Lamont, Michael Stringer, uh, John Box and uh, Ken Adam, to my surprise. They all came out through that school and they really were top designers. They really were and uh, uh, there was nobody to touch them in those days. And uh, uh, Peter Merton was one of them. And uh, I always, uh, around that time, tried to hook myself onto a good designer I found out that if you've got a good designer on a film, you're more than halfway home. If you've got a bad designer, you'll get sets that you're never going to be able to do anything with because they look horrible anyway. But a good designer will give you wonderful sets and, you know, you feel comfortable in them and they're easy to light and you know what they want you to do. And they're practical sets, you can work fast in them and anywhere you put the camera, you've got a composition. A bad designer, you can put a viewfinder on the set and struggle around and never get a composition,
0: and it all wastes time. Guy Hamilton recalls how one of the most popular characters from the previous 007 film returned in The Man with the Golden Gun. We'd had such fun with Sheriff Pepper that
1: we thought, is there a way of getting him? We said, well, yes, I mean, he could have a Mrs Pepper and they could be tourists uh, on the Klongs. And he's yelling and shouting and doesn't uh, like anything about Hong Kong. He'd much rather be back in Louisiana, I think. And of course, it becomes total madness when he suddenly sees Bond for the second time in the most unlikely setting. He can't believe his eyes.
0: Production designer Peter Merton recalls shooting the man with the golden gun's boat chase scenes in the Klongs of Thailand.
2: That was a lot of fun. Hot, smelly. It was difficult to get the the fruit sellers and the the people who live on the water uh, out of the way. So we just had to use the local police who who shepherded them out when we came through. But but those those long boats they used with the Ford V8 on the end of a long propeller thing, they were lethal, but uh, very efficient. Didn't take up much space in the, in the lineal attitude, but uh, going around the corner, they were a bit hairy, because the propeller used to have to fly all over the place. Hence the idea of Bond using it as a weapon, which uh, I thought was an interesting little touch too. I don't think they undershot on those. They were, they were because if you do that, then everything else speeds up as well. No, they were, they were really moving.
0: One of the biggest challenges for Peter Merton and his art department crew was to design a gun which could be broken down into component parts. Merton recalls how the challenge was met.
2: I had to invent something which could evolve out of things which were nondescript, everyday things. So we got a whole host of things together, cigarette lighters, pens, all those kind of things, bracelets, watches, all that, and we Laid them all out. They made this whole thing slot together, machined it, um, gold plated it, all the usual usual things. So it it worked. You know, it looked like it worked, Um, but like so many other things in Bond films, they have to look as though they work, although they don't have to work really.
0: Much of the work of actually designing the Golden Gun fell to co-art director Peter Lamont, a veteran of the 007 films since Goldfinger, where his first job was designing the exterior of Fort Knox. Here's Peter Lamont. I was on
8: Man with a Golden Gun, and Peter Merton said to me, you know, we've got to get this Golden Gun. Um, See what you can do with it, you know, it's got to be made of components, you know, a cigarette lighter, pen, cufflinks cigarette case, and uh, I got some little components. I think at that time we had a, a deal with Colibri over in uh, Euston Road, and I got some lighters from them, that type of stuff. And I had a Waterman pen, and um, I had to go then to Hong Kong, but I'd left all the, everything going on with uh, the persistent art director at that time, Ernie Archer. And he saw it through with Colibri, and there was a f- company just off um, Tottenham Court Road called Rose, and they did a lot of the. They work in metal. Metal is uh, silver to them. We did get the golden gun. It was made in components. I'm not going to go into that, but it it it. We did have a fixed one, and we had one that was, that you could actually put together. I remember. One Friday night, John and I were packing all our stuff up, ready to go off to um, Thailand. And Peter came in and said, oh, by the way, be prepared to stay. So we are going for a two-week wrecking. I came home about five months later. We set up shop in Bangkok. And um, we had, obviously, the location down in uh, the island of Pang We were getting the sets ready. And I remember we wanted a junk. We also wanted one in Phuket. Well, the the problems to bring one down were enormous. But we did find that there was an old charcoal junk that used to ply between Phuket and, I think, uh, Kuala Lumpur. And uh, they brought it up, and it was in quite dreadful condition. And uh, we eventually got this um, junk into some semblance of order. And uh, I can remember we had a painter from Paiwila at that. I said, now, it's supposed to be, uh, this is a picture of the real jump. It's supposed to be like, looks like mahogany. He said, right, so he gave me some great samples. And I said, Pat, that's the one. And I remember he started painting the boat and I came down to the dockside. I looked at it and, and he came over and he looked at it and he kind of half closed his eyes. He said, well, half close your eyes, it looks pretty good to me. I said, well, you come and tell Ted Moore that when we come to shoot, you know, now we better get it right. Anyway, we did get it right. And then there was another time with the sails. As the boys were finishing around on the island with John Graysmark, he was sending them around to me and uh, the riggers and the plasters turned up. And they said, what can we do? So I said, look, I've got the brand new set of sails. Okay? Now, what I want you to do, there's some big puddles over there. Just put the sails in the muddy water, okay? Won't come to any harm. And the same painter came Came onto the boat later on, and he said, Oh, I saw the boys. He said, I helped him out with a drop of colour. (sighs) So I roared back, seeing what they were doing, and the damn sails were, I can't tell you, you know. So we threw it into the water, and I remember diving in with it to try and get all this colour out. It wouldn't come out. And the, the, the outcome was we eventually had to paint the
0: sails. But it was a... This is just one of the things that went on. Ian Fleming's creation, James Bond 007, is a character with very broad appeal, as director Guy Hamilton explains.
1: A rather lonely Bond returns to his virginal couch for once in his life. No, fooled you. Bond is irresistible, as you know. A married goodnight looks
0: very delectable. Brit Eklund's show business career began when she appeared in a toothpaste commercial at the age of 15. After two years of drama school, she began in films and television. She married comedian Peter Sellers in February 1964 and appeared in two films with him, After The Fox and The Bobo, the couple divorced in December 1968. Here she recalls what it was like being in a James Bond film.
11: I loved doing it. I've always loved traveling. And that's one of the joys of being an actress, is that you get to travel a lot. And this, we did, um, we spent about four weeks in Hong Kong. We spent uh, about six weeks in in Thailand. And, of course, now Thailand is a tremendously popular holiday resort. In those days, I think we discovered the, what is now known as the James Bond Islands. Um, it was just an amazing experience. You stayed in the best hotels. They were oriental in, in Bangkok. Um, big I sweets. Khabib Broccoli was probably the most generous That's producer I've one. ever worked yeah. with. He wanted That's you to be comfortable. He wanted me to be a little fatter, can you believe that? <laughs> he used to invite us all That's for dinner every days. Saturday. And sometimes he wanted me to eat, Well, it was always Italian meal, which was not difficult to find in Hong Kong, very good. Yeah, he always insisted that I eat double of everyone else. I'm very proud and very pleased when people say, "Oh, you were a Bond girl," and it was a great experience. It um, it's a great publicity machine. You 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 sort of get dressed up beautifully, and I think it's. It's, no you it's a great mind. opportunity if you, if you like that kind of thing, if you like the glamour that comes with being a Bond girl and, and like to do the publicity and travel around the world and go to all the premieres and then hopefully continue your career after that, which I did. It wasn't easy getting his fingerprint on the note.
0: Since Maud Adams and Britt Eklund were not required to be in every scene of the film, they found themselves with time to spare on the man with the golden gun's exotic locations. More Adams recalls how they both made use of their days off.
3: Britt and I were everywhere, seemingly, trying to find bargains. I actually bought myself my first sort of important piece of jewelry when I was there as well. That I think I, it was an emerald, it was a rough cut emerald, that I only had for a couple of weeks. I mean, some other location I dropped it on the floor and it cracked. <laughs> but... Um, I was sort of taking, learning fast from Britt about shopping. And uh, we had a fun time doing that. Britt and I met, I'd actually flown from New York to London, and in London, Britt got on the plane, and uh, that was the first time I'd heard about Britt, of course, for years and years, but I'd never met her, so I was a little bit anxious about getting to know her as well. But she turned out to be a great gal, and we, and, um, we made friends, as I said, on the flight over.
0: Maud Adams was born Maud Wickström in Lulea, Sweden in 1945. Her stunning beauty and regal poise led her into a modelling career, which in turn led to film work. Adams recalls how she came to be cast in The Man with the Golden Gun.
3: I had then been working in New York for, um, as a model, primarily of course, and I had made my first three films. I'd made two Canadian movies after the Christian Licorice store. And I had started um, taking acting lessons in New York. And of course, I wanted to be an actress in the fiercest of ways. I really was a very ambitious young lady at the time. And I got a call uh, from my agent to meet with the Broccolis in New York. And I was very excited, of course, about the prospect of being in a Bond movie. it, it, it didn't take that long actually to, to get the part i was rather surprised at how quickly they made their decision uh, and it was a family affair because i met uh, mrs broccoli at the same time and uh, she was quite a uh, she was definitely part of the of the selection process and uh, when i got the part i was thrilled of course but i had no idea what it was going to the importance it was going to have in my life
0: Andrea Anders is not your typical James Bond girl. She's a tragic character doomed to pay the ultimate price for her betrayal of Scaramanga. Actress Maude Adams recalls the nuances of the role.
3: Andrea is actually a rather dark character uh, in the Bond films, and of all the Bond women, I think that she is probably the one that... She she doesn't have a lot of choices. She is under the um, um, influence of this very very strong man, and she's fearing for her life most of the time. And when she finally uh, rebels against him and actually defects, it um, it, it's a major step for her. And what doing? I think that um, when I read the part, I really read it as a fairly uh, as that as a, as a woman who was was really victimized by a man. And. Um, I think that if I were to play the part today, I would have probably played it somewhat different. Um, Simply, I mean, I would have liked to have made a little bit of a stronger character. Ultimately the character, she does overcome uh, her situation, but she pays with her life.
0: Mary Goodnight has good cause to be angry with Bond. The way the scenes were edited, it appears that 007 left her in the closet not only for the duration of his lovemaking to Andrea, but also for the length of time it takes Andrea to find her way back to Scaramanga's junk. The exterior shots of the kickboxing stadium were filmed on May 20th and 21st at two different locations, Thailand's Raj Damnan Stadium and Lumpani Stadium. On June 7th and 8th, interior shots were filmed at Raj Damnan Stadium As with other locations for the film, the crew had to strictly observe local practices. The call sheet for the interior filming notes that in keeping with Thai custom, women were not permitted in the boxing ring under any circumstances. Director Guy Hamilton remembers shooting the scene. We couldn't
1: afford to fill the arena and pay all the extras, so we promoted our own bill. We hired, uh, I think, six fights and advertised in all the newspapers and sure enough the um, the stadium filled up uh, comfortably and uh, we had to be fairly careful to feed the fight scene so be, there was a lot of hand clapping waiting because we were a bit slow delivering the next fight whilst
0: uh, we set up Actor sun Tech Oh remembers how the producers achieved authenticity for the scenes inside the sweltering kickboxing stadium.
9: It wasn't a real tournament, but they got champions, like the ex-champion and the previous year and the current champion. And they were really, really uh, that, you know, fighting furiously and realistically. I thought that was very impressive. I was a little bit into the martial arts, so I was watching it. I was more interested in the kickboxing, so my attire itself wasn't, I wasn't paying much attention.
0: (laughs) Director Guy Hamilton recalls the challenges for the actors in the scene. And now we
1: discover a dead Maud.
6: Darling, I left it
1: in your handbag. (laughs) It must be in here somewhere, dear. I saw the man in the shop give it to you. He has no idea that he's sitting next to Scaramanga. Yet, Scaramanga introduces himself. I wouldn't do that either. It's always a pleasure for an actor to work with another good actor because uh, their timing improves enormously. Uh, It brings out the best in the pair of them.
0: Kickboxing, whose proper name is Muay Thai, derived from the ancient fighting arts of Thailand. In Muay Thai, all eight weapons are utilised. Two fists, two elbows, two feet and two knees. The only illegal striking points are a deliberate blow to the groin or a strike intended to break the knee joint. Lumpini and Raj Damnan are the two biggest stadiums in Thailand. Each one holds a fight every day. Now let's go back to Maud Adams.
3: And uh, for me personally, I mean, the hard part was just being able to sit there and not breathe (laughs) because it was very, very hot and... The scene took quite some time to do.
0: From the time shooting began on Kaoping Khan Island on April 19th, 1974, until the final week of June, when the main unit returned to Pinewood, the actors had spent two months on the foreign locations. Here's Sun Teko.
9: When we went to Pinewood, uh, one day, um, 1st AD, told me that I will be free Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Of course, they don't work on weekends. So I thought, okay, though, you know, I've always wanted to see that Shakespearean play and that Oxford. Yes. So Friday morning, I got up early and I left town. And I discovered that I like killing people even more. And I was riding bus to enjoy the sights and so forth. Then by the time I got to the hotel in the lobby, I saw a driver. That, you know, who always me? I said, "Oh, you're having a vacation here." So I said, "No, I've been waiting for you here since like ten o'clock in the morning." <laughs> then it was like almost three o'clock in the afternoon. So I said, "How did you know that I was coming here?" And that's the time I was talking about, you know, production manager, remarkable people. That he, all the station, stay, uh, the railway station was announcing for me to call the company as well as he called Paris, all the airlines. So I didn't fly out. I'm not calling him back from the railroad station. So he sort of figured, well, he could have gone to Oxford. So they called in all the hotels in Oxford, and they, they found a hotel which I made a reservation, as well as Buck's office. You know, So that's how they found me. So we drove down, like flying down. And uh, uh, Mr. Moore was waiting, Mr. Broccoli was waiting, and they're always playing that. I think the was always playing. So they, I, I think they wait at least about four, five hours. I think in the morning, sort of schedule got changed.
0: By the time they were find, you know, trying to find me, I was already gone. Over the years, the Bond films developed a reputation for having jaw-dropping stunts. This was especially true of Roger Moore's 007 films, Beginning with the boat leaping over the highway in *Live and Let Die*, and continuing with the amazing pre-credits parachute stunts of *The Spy Who Loved Me* and *Moonraker*, stunt coordinator Jay Milligan remembers the *Man with the Golden Gun*'s jaw-dropping stunt, the astro spiral jump, filmed at Klong Rany on Saturday, June 1st, 1974.
10: We call it the astro spiral stunt, which was an automobile going up a takeoff ramp doing a 360-degree spiral like a football, landing on its wheels and driving off. And this particular stunt was in every automotive publication worldwide. We first performed it in the Houston Astrodome. And the stunt was very successful. Everyone from Walter Cronkite talked about it the night that we did the stunt or were to do it. The Astrodome was sold out. Our little company had never made so much money in advance. And Cubby had seen the write-ups in several automotive publications around the world, and he called and tracked me down into this little hotel in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, wanting to know, could we do this for Bond?
0: Since the car used in the Astro Spiral Jump was an AMC, Bond needed one for the chase that leads up to the stunt. When the producers were unable to find a conveniently located dealership, Production designer Peter Merton took the direct approach. We built it.
2: We, you know, we had to because you can't just, uh, or we built a facade. I, I think we found a uh, an empty, empty uh, lot, and and we built a facade on it. Um, because you can't just you know, go in there and wreck somebody's showrooms as easily as that. Not that they're putting their name, AMC, putting their name to the whole thing, but it was an interesting. Little Bondian gimmick, you
0: know. Stunt coordinator Jay Milligan remembers the driving stunts.
10: I drove a car. I was the driver of the car that came out of the showroom. I had a two-way radio sitting on the front seat of the car that I was driving out of the showroom, and I got a countdown, and I had the car in gear. And when I said go, I stepped on the gas, not knowing that the caretakers in the chalk Chai building Knew there was a movie taking place in the morning, and they went and waxed the floors the night before. So by stepping on the gas, I'm burning rubber in the showroom. And Guy Hamilton is up on a building hollering, Go, 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 I said, and my tires are spinning. Went out in the traffic, and then other associate directors and producers are hollering at me on the radio, catch the car. So I went up on an island, and I drove about a quarter of a mile on an island with two wheels on the road and two wheels up on the dirt island. And while I'm driving, I can hear the producers and the directors screaming, Jay, go, it's great, keep going. (laughs) So there were a couple unreasonable things, but as a stunt person being paid very well by Cubby Broccoli, uh, each one of my people, I think, we all put our lives on the line to make this look great and good, and it did.
0: After his appearance as Sheriff J.W. Pepper in Live and Let Die, New York stage actor Clifton James found himself being offered many more sheriff roles. He also found himself being mistaken for other people who had played sheriffs, as he explains here.
8: J.W. Pepper was in uh, in, uh, the sheriff in uh, Live and Let Die, and then he's on vacation with his wife in Bangkok for the... Man with the Golden Gun, and each time he gets involved with James Bond, you know, and has the funny right. scenes, you know. Right. I'm accused of doing all the sheriffs. I mean, which is not terrible, but it's so embarrassing. They say, "Hey, I saw you in that Burt Reynolds movie. You are terrific. You did," and it's not me at all. It's Ned Beatty, or it's Jackie Gleason, or it's you know, it's not me.
0: Jay Milligan discusses the engineering challenges of the Astro Spiral Jump. Our goal and
10: and those of the engineer Raymond McHenry was to get the car completely upside down, approximately 20 foot from the takeoff ramp headed in a straight direction. So that was the first half of the computer was able to design that. And then to allow the car to continue with roll velocity and its pitch was to design the landing ramp to catch the car in the position it would be in at the end of the 40-foot area. And we had asked uh, the engineer, Ray McHenry, to design this as a 40-foot jump. And we also asked him to design it at 40 miles an hour. The things that are most critical to the uh, successful takeoff and landing of the stunt is speed. And we're talking plus or minus a half mile an hour. We're talking about the lineup with the takeoff ramp, very critical, plus or minus an inch or two on either side. We had two or three drivers who had experience, quote unquote, daredevil stuntman type experience. However, we really never had what we call an auto daredevil type a person who could discipline himself to not knowing what was going around on the outside, the surroundings. And we found a driver who we knew through the business, whose name was Lauren Willett. And he was from Tipton, Iowa. And we called him and asked him if he'd like to come over and look at the stunt and maybe join us for the Bond movie. He and I, when we arrived in Bangkok, spent 20 hours in that automobile. This driver could discipline himself. So if I walked in front of his car, 20 feet before the takeoff ramp, and he stopped the car. And I asked him, was there anything unusual? If he said he didn't see me or notice anything unusual, we knew he was ready to go. He had never done the stunt prior to that. He had seen it on film.
0: Guy Hamilton remembers the remarkable stunt. Jerry Chitwood showed
1: me uh, a stunt that was being done in... Motor Shows, which was a car turning 360 degrees, I said, that we've got to have. Let's do it across a river. It has to be very carefully prepared. The car is modified. The driving seat is right in the centre of the car. When you reach the other side, uh, you've got to be doing exactly the right speed. As you run up the ramp... There is an arm toggle that is welded to the front of the car, which knocks a piece of the ramp down, which causes the front wheel to go down, and that is the start of the spin.
0: Back to stunt coordinator Jay
10: Milligan. I understand there were five cameras on the set that day, and uh, there was one take, and. uh, yeah, it was there was a great celebration uh pinewood studios and uh, the caterer from london had champagne ready with the champagne glasses and i still have a great picture and vivid memory of roger moore coming up to the driver and to me with tears in his eyes saying you fellas really made me look good and with that cubby popped the cork on the champagne bottle and poured a little over our heads and we had a great toast. And then he said, would you like to do it again? And I said, it'll be very expensive. And he said, let's wait till we see the rushes in the morning. This film will be in London tonight. We will have the results in the morning. We're going to have a 5 o'clock breakfast meeting. And at 6 in the morning, we got a call from the studios, Pinewood Studios in London, that the picture was a Lulu and never really being in the film business before, I didn't really know what that meant. You know, we have people that we refer to as Lulu's that really aren't all there. And and with that, everybody on the set, uh, all the directors and producers and cameramen jumped up and celebrated and clapped hands. That, That meant it was perfect. So there was never any more conversation about doing it again. If there's any one thing people have asked me that um, after it was over and after I seen the premiere of the movie and I was honored and I was paid very well for everything that we did with Bond, I have to make a statement that um, being a part of of Bond, being a part of Eon Productions, being a part of the actors, the actresses, I love doing what I did. And to Jay Milligan, it became an honor.
0: John Barry used a penny whistle sound effect during the Spiral jump, which co-producer Cubby Broccoli felt undercut the stunt. But he allowed it to stay in, and ultimately Barry realized that it wasn't right, as the composer now recalls.
6: Earlier on, if I'd have seen that car go up over that thing, I'd have played it. For all it was worth, there's a really dangerous moment, and that was the true James Bond style. I broke the golden rule, actually, and Cubby was absolutely right.
0: Michael Wilson was working for Dan Jack, the company that holds the rights to the Bond stories, during the filming of The Man with the Golden Gun. Here he recalls the inspiration for Scaramanga's flying car.
12: That was based on a real car plane, supposedly, conversion. One of those sort of Rube Goldberg things that um, was invented in the 50s and 60s. The idea that one could commute to work and fly and then drive uh, was an idea that um, everybody thought could be made practical, but it never was.
0: Peter Merton recalls how the flying car shots were achieved. It was a concoction, a concoction of
12: real
2: car uh, built on real wings at, at Pinewood, down the runway and then and then the, the, the transition from that to model of it taking off and flying uh, all for real but half half model half real um, I know that Johnny Sears had a, a bit of a problem when he was testing it out on the on the back lot of pinewood. it nearly flew you know he, he was getting a bit scared that he was just beginning to get. Very light on the steering, so he said, Okay, it'll work, but not mine. <laughs> on my model, yes.
0: Director Guy Hamilton also recalls capturing the flying car scenes. Yes, this is, you know, very much the art department's um, well, feasible,
1: fact, work. It is, it is presumably uh, some of it feasible. Yes, Therefore, the the if you could get a power unit onto a real car, Uh, aerodynamically, what the art department drew up uh, makes
0: sense. Bond
1: has cocked it up again. We don't know where Scaramanga is. He could be anywhere in his aeroplane. Fortunately, uh, the Homer, which Goodnight has in the back of the car, gives uh,
0: here, and we're receiving her M
1: and Q and everybody a clue where they are and they're flying into some islands off Red China. Uh, that is not a place where Bon can go to, but he volunteers to fly in uh, below radar using uh, a small seaplane.
9: If the PM gets to hear of this, he'll hang me from the yardarm.
6: Officially, you won't know a thing about it, sir.
1: And these are these beautiful islands that I really hunted around, and I think they're absolutely magnificent to look at. They're so, uh, so picturesque. The seaplane belonged to an American gentleman who was extraordinarily wealthy, and that was one of his toys. And we said, can we... um, Hire it, and he said, no, you can't, but um, uh, if I can fly it and be in the picture, I'll fly to Bangkok. And this is what he uh, did. Uh, he was a Bond aficionado and um, we were delighted. It flew from uh, the US of A in stages all the way to Phuket and these
0: islands. In these scenes we get a spectacular view of one of the most exotic and mysterious locations ever featured in a 007 film. Ping Khan Island, located in the Thakwa Thung district of Ao Phang Na National Park in the Phang Na province of southern Thailand. When The Man with the Golden Gun filmed there in 1974, it was a largely undiscovered and unvisited spot. Now it is a very popular tourist attraction. It was established as a national park in 1982 to conserve and protect one of the most important coastal mangrove regions of Thailand. The park covers an area of 400 square kilometers and is comprised of many islands of various shapes and sizes. Among the park's attractions are caves and beautiful bays, rock formations and lagoons filled with mangrove. The shots of Bond's plane arriving on Scaramangas Island were the first to be filmed on the location on the first official day of shooting, April 17th, 1974. Flying the Seabee is Colonel Clare, who had a spot of trouble with the landing on the beach, as director Guy Hamilton recalls. The
1: pilot landed and had to Splash down and cruise up onto the beach. The first take, uh, he came on so slowly that I had to send him up to do it again. And this time he does it with such enthusiasm that uh, he came up the beach and wang! Uh, came in much too fast and hurt himself. And he had to go to a hospital, which was very sad. But at least we'd... Um, got the plane
0: on the beach. Production designer Peter Merton remembers Colonel Clare's CB.
2: But the man who flew it low and then landed it on the beach was an ace, because um, we didn't think he could actually land it there and then skid up the beach like that, but he obviously knew the Groom and Goose better than we did. Um, and then we built a replica uh, in pieces back on, on the mainland and again shipped it out.
0: Director Guy Hamilton shares his thoughts on this particular scene. Mr. Scaramanga welcomes
1: you to the island, and he thinks it's uh, hugely funny, The Bond is going absolutely nowhere. We can talk seriously about life and everything.
6: We have so
0: Translated from Thai, Ping Khan literally means leaning mount. It is in actuality one huge rock that has split in two. The smaller half has slid down, and the remaining half appears now to be leaning. Though the area is currently teeming with tourist boats, in 1974 it was not set up to accommodate hordes of visitors, which posed problems for the crew of the film, as director Guy Hamilton explains. There's plenty of room. Uh, I mean, there's the beach. Uh, it's quite it's
1: quite wide, at uh, the beach either side, and there's enough room for the art department to... Um build into the rocks those doorways that you see leading into the set at
0: Pinewood. If it were not for the contributions of model makers, the budgets of the 007 films would be truly astronomical. From the 1970s onwards into the 90s, one of the premier model makers on the films was the late Derek Meddings. Meddings got his start working with the grandfather of British special effects, Les Bowie, as a matte painter on the Hammer Horror Films. When Meddings discovered that he was slightly colorblind, he switched to doing model work and found his true calling. His creations for the television series Thunderbirds led to feature film work. Director Guy Hamilton. Now this is
1: uh, Derek Meddings at his very, very best, and I'd like you to look carefully. Uh, This shot here, you see, we pan down. There is no set, that is a miniature. And this is the real set. You can't tell the difference between A and B, if you rock and roll those two shots you will see how magical Meddings is in building the set. The basic trick was that uh, we lit the set and Meddings when he lit his model had to use exactly the same lighting but in miniature. So you can imagine a six foot by six foot model which is what that set is uh, beautifully beautifully lit to match and several times just to be naughty instead of cutting to the set i cut to the miniature just to show how really good to uh, cubby and many times in the future bonds they were able to save fortunes and design very large sets because they turned out to be Medding's miniatures.
0: Medding's first assignment on the Bond films was creating a miniature poppy field to blow up for the finale of 1973's Live and Let Die. In an interview given on a very windy day during the shooting of Goldeneye, Medding spoke about his work on The Man with the Golden Gun.
13: We had the island, was it Phuket? Yeah, of course I didn't go out there, unfortunately. But uh, the final scene is where the island um, Scaramanga's um, hideout blows up with all those big vats. And they were all built um, as an enormous set at Pinewood. And they did a certain amount of sort of explosions and destruction, but it's easier to do it as a miniature. And of course that was what I was asked, you know, if this, could this be done? Um, as a miniature to, yeah, to blow so the whole lot up. In actual fact, I suppose it was about twice the size of the one that you've just seen on the set, because of the the, the tanks and um, knowing that there was a certain amount of liquid in there. You know, you had to have the right sort of scale. Um, the island blowing up we did on the back lot at Pinewood. Instead of just doing it in great gouts of fire, I I was thinking of. Um, when they were bombing Monte Cassino during the war, shelling it, and how you, from a distance you see all these explosions and plumes bursting into the air. And so we built the island, and as we built the island, I put the charges in. And we shot it again at very high speed and did this whole series of explosions, which to me, I thought looked quite spectacular.
0: The mushroom-shaped rock is Khao Tapu, or James Bond Island. Located in a little bay of Khao Khan, Khao Tapu takes its name from its shape. The word tapu means nail in Thai, an appropriate moniker for an island that is narrow at the waterline and wide and flat at the top. A production designer on a James Bond film must do more than create elaborate sets for the heroes and villains. He must also create elaborate weaponry, such as Scaramanga's solar-powered laser. Production designer Peter Merton.
2: Invention is the name of the game you had to make it look potentially lethal it had to be seen to work you know there's no point in just although the laser you know the actual laser beam itself was was applied optically afterwards but it had to have a a look as though it would it could work and is working
6: That's
2: what I call solar power. That's what I call trouble. We didn't actually blow up the real plane. Uh, that would be sacrilege, because they were, they were a fairly old plane even then.
0: Indeed, the plane that is seen to explode from Scaramanga's laser is an art department mock-up. Current Bond producer Michael Wilson remembers giving technical advice on the man with the golden gun.
12: I was trained as an engineer in California before I went to law school, and it was... Um, you know, I've always kind of had a hand in my hand, sort of, in the scientific journals and try to keep up and try to evaluate, um, some of the technology to give us some ideas on plots. And I was involved with, um, Dick Maybaum, who was writing Man with the Golden Gun at, uh, coming up with a basic plot. And the solar agitator was the son of MacGuffin that we used. And I, I did some research on that for him. Um, At the time, I was a business affairs lawyer in the company, but um, I liked to moonlight a little bit, so it was fun to, to work with them on that.
0: Christopher Lee, who in real life is Ian Fleming's cousin, remembers where the author acquired the name for the villain of the man with the golden gun.
6: There was a man called Scaramanga who was at Eton with Ian, or so he told me, and he disliked him intensely, couldn't bear the man or the boys he was then, that's why he gave the name to his villain, Scaramanga,
0: because he disliked the schoolboy so much. So it's not an invented name. A line spoken by Bond in this scene, there's a useful four-letter word and you're full of it, is repeated by Timothy Dalton in his debut 007 film, The Living Daylights. Director Guy Hamilton talks about the dinner scene. Scaramanga, having
1: explained to Bond his master plan and... um, Bond's now total uselessness uh, is doing something quite interesting during that. He's got out the props to make the golden gun. And at a certain moment, Bond uh, goes for his gun, which surprisingly enough, uh, Scaramanga has let him keep. uh, And Bond uh, pulls it. But he's too late because Scaramanga has assembled in front of Bond his golden gun. And as Scaramanga says, I could have shot you, you know, any time, but it's not my intention. I brought you out here really because you are said to be a great, great marksman, and I reckon that I'm the world's best, and I would like, as my epitaph, that I was the man who killed 007. So we will go out mano a mano and see.
6: Who is the best man? ...stuffed and displayed over your rocky mantle.
0: Co-screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz has fond memories of his collaboration with director Guy Hamilton, as he recalls here.
4: Guy was always wonderful to me, and he thought he'd found somebody, and he really sort of nursed me along and tried to protect me.
0: To your... Mankiewicz originally patterned the duel on the beach between Bond and Scaramanga after the duel between Jack Palance and Alan Ladd in the classic Western Shane. In the original screenplay of The Man with the Golden Gun, the duel went on much longer than it does in the finished film. Indeed, the second half of the scene, which was shot, ended up on the cutting room floor when the producers felt that it slowed down the pace of the movie. A few shots from the deleted scene, however, made their way into the film's coming attractions trailers. Christopher Lee remembers the sequence.
6: It's a pity that wasn't in the film. We started back to back and walked away as yes, a knick was counting and then I dived behind some rocks. I cheated after about six, seven, eight steps. Roger, being true blue Brit, turns around, having taken the required number of steps. There's nobody there, I vanished. But I think he suspected, James Bond suspected, that Scaramanga was probably hiding. That's what we shot. He's very suspicious. He realizes that I can't possibly have got indoors in such a quick time, so I think he thinks, Oh, he's hiding somewhere perhaps he has got another bullet which of course I did have Scaramanga was not taking any chances he said I only need one but in fact you have another bullet and a belt buckle and we shot the scene where I'm waiting behind and he's trying to draw my fire so he gets hold of a thermos or a bottle or something and fills it with uh, with gasoline he suspects I'm there. So he throws this bottle, which when it lands, of course, it's going to burst and they're all very unpleasant for me. And I'm fooled by this trick, this Bond trick. And I use the extra bullet having put it into the breach. And I shoot the bottle. And of course that tells him right away that I did have another bullet and I'm still there behind the rocks. So he cheated, but that's the kind of man he was.
0: Michael Wilson recalls co-producer Cubby Broccoli's attitude to the location filming. Cubby was
12: very much involved in taking films to real locations and getting those production values. And when it came to the Bond films, uh, he brought that concept to the Bond films. And so the Bond films had the tradition of going out and this, you know, going to Paquette Filming down there and filming in Thailand and all was, with the first unit, was uh, one of those situations where um, Cubby followed in that tradition. We had to get a seaplane down there, which was, had to come all the way from the United States and be certified and had to get a pilot down there who could land it and bring it up on the beach. These were, uh, in those days, immensely complicated uh, things to bring off. Um, today, of course, when you go down there, uh, the Thai government has declared the whole area a national monument. It's the James Bond Island's there, it's a national park.
0: Many years after The Man with the Golden Gun, actor Christopher Lee returned with his wife to Ping Khan Island, as he recalls here.
12: I flew all
6: the way to Phuket to play three holes of golf. But my wife, well, I couldn't believe it when we arrived at but, I mean, it's like Miami. I didn't recognize anything at all. Literally nothing. And I said to my wife, you know, you weren't allowed to come down here, so we'd get a boat. Boats hadn't changed. These long, long uh, screw propellers at the back, which get you through the water at quite a rate. And so I hired one of these. My wife and I went out to the island. I couldn't believe it. I was showing her this, that, and the other, and uh, I said, now you recognize this big. Piece of rock overgrown, of course, which is right in front of the island where the, the solar panel came out in the, in the film and film, so on and so forth, which naturally was a model. And she said, Yes, I recognize that and all these fantastic, wonderful, amazing Japanese landscape painting type. Huge masses of rock came out of the water. It was an incredible location, one of the most beautiful in the world. And I said, Well that's the island, as you can see, we're just about oh my God, I can't believe it. I said that to her. I said, I've never seen so many people. There were flotillas. I mean, I gather there's over a million visitors a year. It's called the James Bond Island, even on the maps. And uh, I couldn't believe it. It There was uh, practically an entire navy uh, coming from all over the place in all directions. And as we got closer to the shore, I could see all these boats drawn up. I noticed also there were these booths with people selling souvenirs and postcards and all sorts of things. You could hardly see the sand. Well, we landed, we got out on the beach, and I said to my wife, I have a funny feeling that it was bigger than this, because it was where Roger and I walked away from each other in the famous duel. And I said, that's where Hervé stood. Are you ready, monsieur, in his high squeaky voice? I will count and so on and so forth. And I realized, of course, that there was hardly anywhere to walk because of these booths with these people, locals, all selling things. So we walked round and we got to the other side. That was the side where, at the beginning of the film, I'm there with Maud Adams as my girl, having my um, black velvet and oysters and shouting at Nick knack for more Tabasco. And it's where Bond arrives and I meet him by shooting the cork out of the bottle. When I said to my wife, well, that actually is the beginning of the cave where it goes into the interior. And as I was pointing things out, I suppose I must have said, I was wearing a cap, dark glass, it was very hot. And uh, I suppose I must have said, well, Roger was there, and I was there. And that was where I was at the beginning, and that was where I was when the duel started. And obviously, people had heard me say, I was there. And they must have looked at me, and, of course, I was recognised by some Americans, and then by some Brits, and then, of course, by the locals and then I had to uh, get into the boat and get away in a bit of a hurry because it became all rather too much.
0: Director Guy Hamilton remembers shooting the final Funhouse sequence. All the odds are with Scaramanga.
1: The question is, how's Bond going to get out of this jam? He's done something quite bright. Instead of, uh, he's climbed under the rostrum where presumably there's no camera and that's what uh, Hervé can't see, so they've... Lost. They've lost Bond, but he's gone and dropped his gun. So he's somewhere around there. Scaramanga is forced to come out and to start looking for him. Bond is not on any of the screens. Even Scaramango's a bit concerned. Basically, it's my idea to have the house of fun. I think some of it came. One of the things in LA that I thought would be marvelous for A Bond movie was for Bond to get into Disneyland but I think carrying on that idea a little bit uh, we felt uh, alright we could do a fun house which uh, was have some of the same elements.
0: The hardest part of being creatively committed to a project for a long length of time is having to finally let go of it. Director Guy Hamilton explains why finishing the filming can be the most bittersweet part of working on a movie. One of, the, one of the
1: directors' nightmares is the day when you have to stop fiddling in the cutting room uh, because music lengths must be given and the pictures got to open as it always did and you had a very short length of time in the cutting room, never enough time. And, but basically that's as good as it gets with the time available. And the picture still has a couple of problem scenes that you never quite solved. And you come to dubbing, which is a pretty dull process because you run the reel again and again and again, whilst the sound technicians uh, rehearse the balance between music and effects and dialogue. And you're sitting there watching again and again this scene that you hate and suddenly, It strikes you what you should have done. And you turn to your editor and you say, you know we are idiots, if only we'd have done this, that, and the other thing. And he says, oh my God, you're so right. And you sit there absolutely powerless, it's too late. Uh, you carry that into every picture. At some stage later, uh, you, you know what you should have done and you didn't do it. So you can watch any of the Bonds, I can watch any of the Bonds that I was involved in. I enjoy certain scenes, I like other scenes, which are probably meaningless to the audience, but they were a problem for me and I solved it, I think, neatly and elegantly, and uh, there we are. Uh, there are other scenes that, oh, the audience uh, say, oh, we love that scene. Uh, I'm delighted but it's such an easy scene to shoot that it was no challenge at all and then there are scenes where later you realize what you should have done the mistake that you made and you walk out and go and Sometimes, if it's a premiere, practically upchuck, and you come back, and you're amazed to find the audience is still there. You imagine that they would all be yelling and booing because they'd have spotted the awful thing that you had done. Uh, I get no pleasure out of seeing uh, any of the films I've done because they all contain some of those elements.
0: Although totally convincing, the clouds in this sequence are not real. They are, in fact, matte paintings created by James Bond veteran Cliff Cully. Cully was also responsible for the white hot solar beam effect, his director, Guy Hamilton.
1: The beam, of course, is superimposed.
11: Hit the mouse the light switch! The what? Good night! Yes, James. Now, listen carefully.
3: There's a
6: console up there. Now, there must be a scanner
0: in.
1: There again, these flares—all uh, uh, model work.
0: Much preparation goes into filming a 007 adventure, as Guy Hamilton recalls. A year goes by between
1: one another. Your all your efforts and concentrating are looking for new ideas for the uh, new picture. You have different cast, different set of problems to solve, to face different locations. It's all great fun, but it's jolly hard work, and when you get to the end, you're always glad to see that shot, because now you can relax a bit and go into the cutting rooms, and that's where really the work starts. Britt Eklund is very good in this. She doesn't mind bangs. Roger doesn't like bangs at all. It comes a moment, it's a little later in this sequence, where the bangs start going off, and um, Roger is meant to sort of uh, help Brit and pull her by uh, the hand and rescue the maiden, and the bangs start to go, and Rogers are gone, <laughs> and Brit has to <laughs> move her bottom before she catches her.
0: <laughs> Making her way through the maze of explosions was tough for Britt Heckland.
11: Most of us do have doubles. Um, you, you, they simply can't afford to lose you. It's not so much that you can't do it. It's more, we can't lose them. Because if you break your leg or a finger or you know, get a black eye, that's it. And it's a very expensive machinery, the Bond behind the scenes. My, the, the, being shoved into the booth with the lid locked that was me, um, running through this, where all the bubbling pots were, His his, his interior, that was also me. And uh, what they do is they set up the explosions to go off. So you, you do it, you run it through and through and through and um, everything is timed immaculately on the second. It's not a, a minute or you know, nothing, it's just seconds. So of course when, when we shoot it and, and Roger grabs my hand and says, come on and we start running The explosions go like this, and I'm wearing a bikini. And um, they are very, very close, they're very close to you. But I made it, I'm here safely.
0: (laughs) Director Guy Hamilton explains why he chose not to make another Bond film after this one. I think that after
1: Man with the Golden Gun, I felt that I really had to walk away from Bond because I had done two on the trot And you need to approach Bond with uh, an enormous amount of enthusiasm, fresh ideas and I think I'd put all the ideas I had into those two pictures and were beginning to uh, run out of, uh, well, basically new thoughts. you should, after a Bond, walk away from it, recharge your batteries, and then come back, perhaps, if you have something to, uh, to say. And I felt that I didn't have that. And to, and to do Bond justice, you have to arrive with huge amount of enthusiasm, which, was be- which I was beginning to lack.
0: All of the Bond films, either written or co-written by Tom Mankiewicz, end with the primary villain being disposed of. And then the villain's henchmen, or henchmen in the case of Diamonds Are Forever, Reappearing at the end to pose a final threat Take to Bond.
11: From China.
1: Now, there's one character that I hope the audience have forgotten about, and that's Abbey Vilches. He looks very evil there and very determined. Well, of course, he can't fight with Roger, so you've got to invent something so you notice earlier on we planted at the bar some uh, wine racks and that should be able for a little bit to keep uh, roger at bay
0: all of the interior scenes of Scaramanga's junk were filmed the first few days after the crew returned from location in thailand in late june of 1974. The special effects department was kept particularly busy with this scene, providing breakaway chairs and an unusually large amount of breakaway wine bottles. Director Guy Hamilton recalls filming the sequence.
1: Right, this is an unfair fight, but uh, there are advantages to being very small. (coughs) And you're just seeing them. So far, Roger hasn't laid a finger on him.
0: The Man with the Golden Gun premiered on network television on January 10, 1977. Four days later, a movie of the week aired called Fantasy Island, featuring Herve Wilshers as Tattoo and Ricardo Mantelban as the mysterious Mr. Rourke. The movie scored high in the ratings and a TV series was soon in the works, propelling Wilshers and his opening words in the show's title, The Plane, to cult status.
1: But now that's a good way of getting uh Temporarily writ of
0: On a historical note, The Man with the Golden Gun, despite its many pluses, suffers from being one of the most dated of the James Bond films due to a plotline closely tied in with the then current energy crisis. In 1973, Arab nations abruptly halted oil exports to the United States. The panic among investors and oil companies caused a tremendous surge in crude oil prices. Though the situation was caused more by fear and irrationality than economics, it was a defining moment for the decade. Alternative means of power generation were now explored like never before. Solar power was one of the most talked about options, and the James Bond filmmakers incorporated it into their script of The Man with the Golden Gun, thus giving the title a dual meaning. Interestingly, The Man with the Golden Gun was the first 007 film to be shown in Soviet Russia, but not publicly. Co-producer, Cubby Broccoli, was invited to screen the film privately for Soviet officials. After it was over, one of them approached him and said, that man, Scaramanga, interesting. Then after a beat, the Russian added, inadequate training. Scaramanga, after all, was said to have been trained by the KGB. It's also worth noting that on February 5th, 1964, when he was writing his novel, The Man with the Golden Gun, at his Jamaican retreat, Goldeneye, 007 creator Ian Fleming received a visit from James Bond. The real Bond was, of course, an ornithologist and author of Birds of the West Indies, a book Fleming kept among his library in Jamaica. When he was writing the first James Bond story, Casino Royale, he wanted a dull-sounding name for his spy character. Seeing the book on the table, he picked the ornithologist's name. Before Bond left, Fleming presented him with a copy of You Only Live Twice, inscribed to the real James Bond from the thief of his identity, Ian Fleming. Now back to the film. The movie's final shot was not an easy one to achieve, as director Guy Hamilton recalls. And the second unit did the, the final
1: shot, and it was quite complex, with the, uh, the junk having to sail in a certain direction, the light having to be in a certain direction, an Hervé tied up in the basket and he was up there for an endless time and was not very very happy about being tied up in a basket on top of the mast whilst um, the unit got a very nice shot.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this audio commentary for The Man With The Golden Gun. We'd like to thank all those actors and crew members who provided us with interviews and helped us document these stories. This audio commentary was compiled by John Cork, Bruce Sively, and Dan Shanks and produced by David Naylor, John Cork, and Bruce Civilly. This is the end of the Man with the Golden Gun audio commentary.